صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today we're joined by international Palestinian superstar, renowned comedian. He's a lawyer. He's an educator. He's an adjunct professor. He's a funny guy and just a brilliant, brilliant Palestinian and the personification of all that we can be. Good morning, Amr Zahar. Good morning, Nasser. Great to see you. Really, really great to see you, Ahmad. We just finished a tour. We're going to get to that in a second. But one thing we like to do whenever we have a new guest on the show is to have them speak to their Nakba story. Well, you know, let me tell you uh, an interesting, and this is a true story. I've told this story a couple times on stage, but uh, I've written it before. So my grandfather, uh, his name was uh, Shafi, my dad's dad. My, you know, as you know, I have a Christian uh, dad and a Muslim mom. And my, my dad's dad, his name was Shafi, and he was born in Nazareth in 1912. He was the second of two sons. His older brother was named Tofi, Tofi Shafi. You know, we do that a lot. We're not very like we're not always creative with our names, you know. <laughs> so Tofi Shafi, and then um, after he was born, his mother died. Now his father's name was Musa. Okay, so Tofi, Tofi, and Shafi's dad. His name is Musa. Now Musa married another woman and became Tofi and Shafi's stepmom. Uh, she will remain unnamed because she wasn't very nice to them, okay? As you might, you know, sort of a Cinderella story, right? She wasn't very nice to them. And as they got older, they didn't have a great relationship with her. She had a couple more kids with Musa. And then Tofit, when he became 18, he got married. He ended up having like 12 kids in Nazareth. And Shafit, when he turned 18 or 19 or something like that, he was just having a very bad time of it in Nazareth. So he said, you know what, guys? I'm leaving. And he left. And he went to Yaffa and he decided to start a new life on his own in Yaffa. And in Yaffa, he decided also to change his name. He kept his last name Zahir, like my, our last name, but he changed his name to his baptismal name, which was Ilyas. So he started letting people know that I am Ilyas Zahir. He got jobs and he eventually met this family in Yaffa of whom my grandmother was a part of. And, and they decided in the 40s, you know, they were like in their 30s. So, you know, they got a little older. They decided they wanted to get married. In 1944, they decided they wanted to get married. And right before they were going to get married, my grandfather, Shafi Ilyas, he's now Ilyas, got called up to fight for the British in World War II because, you know, many Palestinians were drafted by the British to fight in World War II. So he went to go fight and he got shot. I think it was in France. He got shot in the leg and, you know, they sent him home. Now, somehow the news got back to Nazareth because they had heard that he went to Yaffa, but they kind of, you know, they lost contact. Somehow news got to Yaffa that Shafi Ilyas had died in the war. And when people in Yaffa told Shafi Ilyas that, hey, your family in Nazareth thinks you're dead, 
he said, good. I don't like them anyway. I don't really want to hang out with them anyway. They think I'm dead. That's fine with me. So then he decided to marry my grandmother, Selma, in 1947. In 1948, they had my father in March of 1948. They had my father, George. And then in April of 1948, they were ethnically cleansed to Amman. And he ended up in a, a neighborhood in Amman called al Hashmi Shemel. Before that, they had lived in a beautiful, vibrant neighborhood in Yaffa called Al-Ajami. Now, Yaffa was one of the cultural and economic centers of Palestine. That's why Shafiq moved there when he left Nazareth. But they took all of Yaffa. They kicked out many thousands of Palestinians from Yaffa and Lidda, Ramle, that whole region where there was many, many successful Palestinians. So now Shafiq, or his name is Elias, and Selma, my grandmother, and George, and then they had another daughter named Janet, you know, you know, these, yeah. you know, these, these Arab Christians came up with, you know, in the 50s, they liked all these like Victorian names, you know, Janet. I have all these like cousins, Victoria, Johnny, Claudette. Anyway, but at least at least they weren't going to lose their culture because they lived there, you know, but still. So th they lived in Amman throughout the 50s and, and in the 60s. Now, at that time, of course, the West Bank, what we call the West Bank today was part of Jordan. And um, then there was the state of Israel, and there were still, you know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians lived in the state of Israel, including in the city of Nazareth, where Musa, my great-grandfather, and his family lived. Okay, I'm getting to the good part. So the only people that used to be able to cross the borders during that time were some Christians during the, during the holidays, they would get permits from Israel to enter East Jerusalem, controlled by the Jordanians, for to go to churches and stuff. And but priests would travel pretty freely between like Nazareth and Amman. Okay, so my grandparents and my father went to a church in Amman, where there was a priest who traveled frequently between Amman and Nazareth. Now he knew the Zahar family in Nazareth, and he knew Elias and Selma and George in Amman. One day when he's in Nazareth, he notices a plaque on a wall in a church that says in Arabic, Ilal Marhum Shafi Ilyas Zahir, in the memory of Shafi Ilyas Zahir, my grandfather. And then he goes back to Amman and he goes to this other church in Amman and he meets this guy named Ilyas Zahir. And he says to Ilyas, you know, Ilyas, kind of crazy. Um, is there a chance that your family, this is like 1960 or 61, is there a chance that your family in Nazareth thinks you're dead? And uh, he said, um, yes, you know, he's like he's like 50 now. He's kind of over it. You know, he says, yeah, they think I'm dead. And the priest says, well, would you like me to reconnect you with them? And Elias says, uh, sure, you know, sure. Try. So then the priest goes back to Nazareth. He meets Musa, who he already knows. Musa is now in his 60s or 70s. He meets Musa, who he already knows. And he says, Musa, I think that your son is alive and he's an Amman. But just in order to be sure, I need you to write me a list of questions that only Shafi Ilyas will know the answer to. So he writes down these questions. They go back to Amman. Uh, he asks Shafi these questions. And Ilyas answers these questions perfectly, of course, because he is the guy. And now there's confirmation. And he takes this confirmation back to Nazareth. And they decide they want to reunify the family. So Musa decides that he's going to get a permit to come into East Jerusalem in 1964 or three or whatever, when, of course, it's controlled by the Jordanians. And so he comes in and Elias drives from Amman down to East Jerusalem to meet him. And now they reunited. It's very beautiful. They've reunited father and son, father in his 60s, almost 70s, son in his 40s, almost 50s. And, and they've reunited. 
And they do this now for, you know, a couple of years. They reunite. Maybe Musa comes for one night to Amman, stays at his son's house. And and this this beautiful story, this beautiful reuniting after the Nekba and a fake World War II story had separated them. And, and this stepmom from 40 years ago had separated them. Well, this goes on for a couple of years. And, and, and then sometime around 1965, Musa gets in this huge fight with his wife in Nazareth. Huge Arab fight. I mean, you can only imagine, right? So, you know, so he's cursing each other's mothers and histories and families. And he and he says, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm going to go live with my son, Elias, in Amman. <laughs> and he leaves Nazareth. He takes a bus from Nazareth to Afuli, which is a town about 10 kilometers south of Nazareth. And then he starts walking <laughs> and he walks and he ends up in the hills of Janine. He crosses the border of the West Bank and ends up in the hills of Janine, which is, of course, controlled by Jordan still. This is pre-1967. And the Jordanian security forces catch him. He's walking alone in the hills of Janine. They ask him for his ID. He gives them his ID, and his ID is Israeli. He's an Israeli citizen of Nazareth. And they say to him, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm going to see my son in Amman. And they say, well, you know, not so fast. So they detain him. Then the Mukhabarat, the, the Jordanian security, comes to my grandfather's house in Amman and says, hey, we caught this old guy, Musa, in the hills of Janine. He says he's your dad. Is that true? And Elias says, yes, that's true. And Elias says to the to the Jordanian services security guys, will you will you let him come see me? They said, of course not. No, we're not going to let him come <laughs> see. That doesn't work like that. We don't have diplomatic relations with this country. We're not going to come see him. So they uh, they don't arrest Musa or anything, but they send him back to Nazareth, which, by the way, makes me believe that my great grandfather Musa must be the only Palestinian ever deported to Israel. <laughs> he's he's got to be the only Palestinian. I mean, he like reversed the Nakba. He was he was deported from Jordan to Israel, which is kind of like what we've all been hoping for, right? He was deported there. Okay, then they don't give him permits anymore to come to uh, Jerusalem on the uh, Christian holidays. Then 1967 happens, and now the Israelis take the West Bank. Now Jordanian people who live in Jordan can't go to the West Bank. And then in 1970, Musa died. But this story is a true story of how the Nakba and colonialism and imperialism of the British. I mean, my grandfather fought for the British because they didn't have any choice. You know, they would take they would colonize places and then use those people as soldiers. And he almost died. And, and then he let his parents think he was dead. Look, at think of all the things that are wrapped up in this story. Uh, British colonialism and imperialism. The Nakba, because he gets kicked out of Yaffa, ethnically cleansed and ends up in Amman and his and his family thinks he's gone. And then just general Arab, like, you know, how many Arabs do we know that, like, get in a fight with their family and don't talk to them again for, like, 30 or 40 years? <laughs> so there's so there's that. And then this priest who just sees this plaque of this dead guy who he knows is alive. And then, just, I mean, it is as Palestinian as it gets. And uh, that that is the story of my grandfather. That's a brilliant story. Now let's talk about your overachieving father. I mean, you're yeah. an overachiever, but you it's, it's a dark shadow he's casting over the rest of the family. Well, you know, it's all relative. You know, it's all. Re I mean, my dad was 
My dad was, uh, uh, again, born in Jaffa in 1948, became a refugee at one month old, grew up in U.N. schools. He would wake up every morning at four o'clock with his grand with his mother, my grandmother, because she got a job in Amman distributing powdered milk from the U.N. rations to her fellow refugees because she could speak a little English. So he knew that. In fact, to this day, my dad refuses to eat white beans because white beans were part of the ration that U.N. Uh, uh, refugees would get. And it just it doesn't matter how delicious they are. It brings memories to him that he, he can't eat them. And uh, he grew up in U.N. schools. He he finished very high in high school, so he was able to go to college. And then just so that he could get a master's degree, he had to finish very high in college. And he did. And then just so that he could get a Ph.D., he had to finish very high in his master's degree. And he did, of course. And then, you know, he ended up in America and he and this guy, you know, by the way, he went back to Jordan to teach. And then because he was still Palestinian and loud, he got kicked out of Jordan, which ended up, you know, I wish he would have just stayed. I mean, maybe he just would have stayed like some middle class professor in Jordan with an American Ph.D. But no, the Jordanian start decided to get involved in this thing and they kicked him out of Jordan. And then he ended up in America and then he gets a job with a research company in America called DuPont, the largest chemical company in the world. They decide, hey, this guy's pretty talented. They let him run a research lab. And then what does he do? Forty one patents. 41 <laughs> patents later he's working on like bulletproof vests and and stain master carpets and polymers and he's just creating new plastics out of nowhere this palestinian refugee 41 patents then he has four kids and what do we do i mean we're just american spoiled kids we're asking for to go out on the miniature golf and all <laughs> this kind of stuff and this guy is like you know supporting us supporting his his cousins back in jordan and you know you have to live we have to live with this guy and this and this you know i mean total overachiever it's like it's like the joke i tell on stage right i mean i bring home my test i get a 96 and my father says where's the other four and then he used to have oh my god in australia do they have like parent teacher conferences oh my oh, god my dad never misses one of those only not because he care he never misses them because he needs to ask the teachers one important question so do you guys offer any extra credit work? Because if if they're, you know, we had this thing called extra credit, like, you know, your teacher might say, you know, you could do what you have to do. But if you want to do this other stuff, you might get extra credit. Once my dad discovered the concept of extra credit, he would just and he'd get mad at teachers who didn't offer it. And then, by the way. And when I was like in the fifth grade, my teachers, we lived in a, you know, suburban America. When I was in the fifth or sixth grade, my teachers went on strike because they weren't getting paid enough. And what did my dad do? My Palestinian Ph.D. full of patents dad. He decides, guess what? We're going to go strike with the teachers because he's still Palestinian. So he goes down on the picket line, starts striking with the teachers. <laughs> he's striking with the teachers. And then when their salary thing gets, he struck with it. He went go strike with the teachers but because the teachers were asking for more money. So he said, you know, I'm striking with them because, you know, we live in a neighborhood. A teacher should make enough money to live in the neighborhood in which they teach, which makes sense. OK, makes sense. but now you have to imagine this this Arab guy with a huge accent, with a big old Saddam Hussein mustache is going down and striking with all these white people. So he strikes with them and they win. And then he becomes very popular in the community. But can he leave it at that? No, of course not. So then he decides to run for school board. So he runs for the school board and he wins. 
He wins school board seat. And now he's sitting on the school board while he has four kids in the school. And he's there. You know, whenever anything happens in the school board, he starts saying, everybody, I think we should make a report to the secretary general. And they're like, bro, there's no secretary general. Okay, this is just a school board in little suburban Philadelphia. And, you know, but he's very active. You know, we find ways to be active and involved. It could be the White House. It could be the school board. So now everybody knows that our four kids and everybody knows our dad's on the school board. Everybody knows, you know, he's George. They, you know, they say to him, George, oh, George, that's an interesting name. And he goes, well, you know, actually, I'm I'm Christian. And and that is a, a Palestinian name, George. You know, it's a Palestinian name, George, St. George. He was Palestinian. And then white people would be like, so um, so uh, so when did you convert? to uh to christianity <laughs> he's like well you know actually we uh invented christianity you know <laughs> so you got to deal with this i mean we can you know arabs invented everything according to my dad my i would bring home my chemistry homework hoping that you know you hope at least you get a little wasta right that your dad will help you say baba can you help me with my chemistry homework you know because i just want the answer okay the answer is like <laughs> The answer is like carbon or something, you know, just give me the answer. First, he looks at the question. He Then he's immediately disappointed. So he's immediately disappointed. So I can't believe that you don't even know the answer right away to this question. All right, Baba, I'm sorry. Can you tell me how to do it? Sure. But first, I don't know if you know this, you know, Arabs invented chemistry. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So now you feel like culturally ashamed that you don't know the answer to this. And it takes about 15 minutes later. And then finally, maybe he lets you know that the answer is carbon. This is the problem of dealing with a refugee in the house. They never stop. They just never stop. I mean, we had to like push him to retire, you know, please retire. And uh, he finally retired after all these patents he's got. And, you know, I mean, look about look, look, Google the U.S. patent office and just put my dad's name in. And it's like, Google result after Google result after Google result of this guy, George Zahib. So this is the world that we lived in. And then what did I do? I became a comedian. I go around. I tell jokes. I, they pay me money. Finally, now he's accepted. You know, I went to law school, so you have to get an advanced degree. I went to law school. Finally, he's accepted this and he's excited about it. My my mom is the one, you know, they, they come to my shows sometimes and they walk around after my shows and. And because I talk about my parents and my shows, as you know, and they walk around after my shows and my dad is very excited. He'll walk and walk up to people and be like, you know, um, the uh, the guy he's talking about in the shows, you know, that's that's me. I am the inspiration for all of this. And my mom walks around after my shows and says, you know, yes, I mean, I think he's very funny, but he is a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> So this is what I'm dealing with, Nasser. 45. I've never, you know, I've never been to therapy. I guess comedy is my therapy. The stage is my therapy. You're lucky to have that. When I came home with those questions from my father, you know, first before anything, this is a year seven question and you're in year nine. How could you not know this? And then the teeth would grind like, you know, you're my heir. You've disappointed right. all of your ancestors. Well, I mean, you know, the problem is kids back home. Look, there's no question that if you're raised in the Arab world, you are just smarter than if you're raised in America and Australia because the schools are, you know, they they just have higher standards, unfortunately. And most importantly, though, they're the politics of the world and even the politics of the countries we live in, like America, affects them more than it affects Americans. Yeah. So they know it. So, you know, you walk up to a, I've I've done it happen before, you know, like like 10 years ago, I walked up to like a little 
six-year-old Palestinian kid in Jerusalem, and he said to me, you are from America? I said, yeah. He said, so do you think that Barack Obama will win enough votes to get to re-election in the Electoral College? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> uh, go play soccer. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, but like this is the world that they live in. Yeah. You know, it is uh, it is unbelievable. It just goes to show that we've been held back. You know, sometimes we say about ourselves that, you know, we're not organized enough and we're not. It's not true. They have bled us and made us fight each other for such a long time. But Qatar and the World Cup showed that if Arabs have opportunity and money and means, they can put on some of the best global events and have very organized societies. And of course we can. And of course we did. And they call us uncivilized. Remember, uncivilized at the beginning of the Ukraine war. I mean, give me a break. I mean, we invented chemistry. We invented all these things. Baghdad, a thousand years ago, had a municipal sewage system. A thousand years ago, while British kings and queens were shitting in a hole in the ground. So I'm done hearing. There's political reasons for these things that are going on today. There's imperial reasons for these things going on today, not cultural reasons. And they always try to make us feel like it's our culture is deficient. It's your culture. It's your religion, whatever. And no, it is. it has been an orchestrated campaign of pushing down the Arab world. I mean, American foreign policy for at least 120 years has been based on pushing down and pushing back the Arab world. And if you look at the regimes they have attacked and the regimes they like, the regimes they like tend to be sometimes a little bit more religious fundamentalist based regimes. And the regimes they've attacked and tried to kill have been the regimes that push pan-Arab pride and we're all in this together and let's all be one people. So it's clear what's going on. And, and luckily, these things are reversing now. Technology has changed a lot. But, you know, we have to really push back when people say, you know, your culture is the problem, your religion is the problem. No, there's political reasons for these things. And, and we are coming back. And I love to see the rise in Arab pride and culture around the world. And that's why I always do it at my shows, to push hard that we have this beautiful, beautiful, long, long, beautiful culture. Brilliant, Ahmed. Now, you came out and you did a national tour, the yeah. uh, east coast of Australia. PANSMA, the Palestinian-Australian New Zealand Medical Association, they brought you out and you did a, a gala event in New South Wales. And then from there to New Zealand, New Zealand right. to Adelaide, Adelaide to Melbourne, Melbourne back to Sydney. So you've done five shows in about a week. Yes. You must be exhausted. Uh, I am. I still my time is not fully on yet, you know, but uh, it's a beautiful place The the people down here, you know, something I, I realize with with Palestinians and Arabs around the world is that, you know, we might you know, we might live in in certain places and we take on the characteristics of those places. So, you know, New York Palestinians are a little rough around the edges. Uh, San Francisco Palestinians are hippies. You know, Australian Palestinians say a curse word every other word, you know. It it but ultimately we are still all Palestinian Arabs with the beauty and generosity and affection of our culture. And that is something that we connect with no matter what. Uh, and uh so to experience that, you know, I always tell people by the way, my American friends, even my American Arab friends, you know, all they're asking me and just to let you know how dumb we are. I mean, what do you think is the one question I got from all my Arab American friends uh, during this last week? Did you see a kangaroo? Did you see a kangaroo? That's right. Yeah. Did you see a kangaroo? Can you take a selfie with a koala? You know, these are the things that I've been hearing. 
Okay, just to let you know uh, how globally aware we are. <laughs> you know, I'm very lucky in my in my job and come to my next show so you can hear uh, how um, I know Janet Jackson. But I'm very lucky in my job that I say this in, in the show. I said 99% of the world doesn't know who I am, but 1% does. And this 1% loves me very much. They're very dedicated to me because I talk about Palestine and I talk about the truth and I'll never stop. But the weird thing about this 1% is that this 1% doesn't live in 1% of the world. They live in 100% of the world mm -hmm. because being Palestinian means you live everywhere. You can live anywhere except Palestine. You, we, we live in every corner of the world. We have slept with every citizenship in the world. And so we are multiracial, multiethnic, multi-everything. And for people who only have one Palestinian parent, like, you know, your kids, you said your wife is Lebanese, you're Palestinian. I tell people, I say there's no such thing as half Palestinian. Okay. If you're a little Palestinian, you're as Palestinian as the rest of us. And, uh, and, and, and that beauty of that struggle and culture and truth being passed down it lives in every corner of the world. So one only 1% of the world might know who I am, but I am internationally, globally famous in every part of the world, even if it's only a couple people. So, you know, <laughs> I take a lot of pride in that. I think you and can I extend that to intergalactic. Um, oh, I would. Uh, listen, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Israel kicked some of us to Mars, too. You know, maybe <laughs> there's some of us there. Who knows? But I mean, uh, I haven't been, the only place I haven't been yet is Antarctica. And there's got to be a Palestinian there. There's I mean, there's, there's got to be. They're, they're all PhDs. They're all PhDs. So they have to be they're PhDs. And I don't know. Antarctica must need like a jewelry store or a gas station. <laughs> I mean, they, we must be there. I mean, we're everywhere. You know, for instance, the Dubuanis, your people, they are, they have made a base in some remote nowhere town in New Mexico called Gallup. New Mexico, okay. where one Dibwani went like 40 years ago. Yeah. He made friends with the natives because there's lots of reservations out there. He saw that they made beautiful jewelry and they weren't really selling it to white people. So he started buying it from the natives and then selling it to white people at a big profit. And he became that guy. And then he told another guy and he said, come here. And there's like nobody in Gallup. I mean, really, it's a small town it has like 5000 people, but it has like a dear Dibwani association of Gallup. <laughs> Gallup, New Mexico, and a mosque, and they have weddings, and like singers have to fly from Chicago to Albuquerque and then drive two hours to Gallup to walk into a room of 300 Dubuennies for a wedding. I mean, this is what we do. And so it is a very, very beautiful thing. You know, being Palestinian has uh, meant that we've had to deal with all this struggle and all this dispossession and hurt and suffering for 75 years. But it means everyone in the world probably knows a Palestinian because of our struggle. And right. everyone has heard the story and it's, it's finally taking root. Things are changing. And as far as I'm concerned, Netanyahu can stay prime minister because he's going to liberate Palestine by, by accident. And we'll name a street after him, you know, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it, it, you know, being us is a very crazy alternate universe type thing, but I happen to believe it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. I mean, otherwise, I, why else would I ever be friends with somebody in Melbourne, Australia? <laughs> Only you, because you're Palestinian. We share this thing immediately with each other, and that kind of beauty uh, can never be matched by anything else. It was the worst thing and the best thing that ever happened to us, Zionism. That's right. Uh, I mean, we've only got a few minutes left. Why don't you tell us uh, when you're coming back and when we, you know, what we might expect the next time you're here? 
Well, you know, I'll put together a new show. You know, comedians, I don't know if I told you this before, Nasser, but I wish I was a singer, man. A singer sings one song, two songs maybe, and they can sing that. It becomes popular, and they can sing it for 30 years. Okay, and they can go to the same place over and over again and sing it for people. Just say, say. And by the way, when you go to like concert and the singer's like, I'm going to sing one of my new songs. Everybody boos. No, (laughs) sing the old song. Okay, I wish I was a singer. Instead, I'm a comedian where if somebody comes to my show and then they come to another show like a year later, they're like, oh, I heard that joke before. I don't like I don't like. So I have to come up with new stuff. So I need a little time, first of all. Okay, but I would love to start coming to Australia once a year, maybe once every two years and doing shows and, and connecting with people over and over again, because, you know, it's a beautiful place physically. Uh, the people have uh, kept our strong Palestinian Arab culture. So hopefully I'll be here next year. I want to do a few more cities. I would love to go to Perth. I would love to go to Brisbane, Canberra, visit a few more communities and really uh, tell our story more and more as Palestinians and Arabs. And so uh, I'll tell you, my price will be a lot higher. I mean, it's a long flight. I mean, man, woo! I don't know if I can do it again. I did it once. You know, I'm like a drug dealer, man. I came here. I did it once for a good price. But, you know, now we're going market rates. You know, no more. No, no more Arab negotiating. No. But I mean, it has been a it has been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I can't wait to come back, frankly. Well, you know, well, you, you do something for us so well with culture, with art, with comedy is humanize us. And with all the demonization of everything that comes with being a Palestinian, your shows and I know in our show in Melbourne, we had quite a few white people, including Robert in the front row, who yes. felt like he was part of the show. You cast us in a different light and really show Palestine for the beauty that it is. So thanks so very much for all that you do, Ahmed. Well, thank you for being uh, an amazing part of our community. And I want you to know that I love you and I'm proud of you. Thanks, Ahmed. I love you and I'm proud of you too. That was Ahmed Zahir, our Palestinian-American comedian, activist, lawyer, educator, superstar, joining us. When he comes next time, make sure you catch him. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast and remember... There's never been a better time for free Palestine.